This episode of Tinfoil Swans is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Tinfoil Swans, a podcast from Food & Wine, where we're serving up inspiring, touching, hilarious, revealing conversations with some of the biggest names in the food and beverage world, and, we hope, giving you plenty to savor even after the episode is over. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, Executive Features Editor at Food & Wine, and I'm eternally fascinated by how successful, creative people become, well, themselves. What are the moments, influences, missteps, pep talks, and decisions, big and small, that got them where they are today? In our debut episode, I had the absolute joy of speaking with the one and only Chef Guy Fieri. He's become a household name as a restaurateur, a cookbook author, host of diners, drive-ins and dives, AKA Triple D, Guy's Grocery Games, Tournament of Champions, and more smash hit shows on the Food Network. In recent years, he's become almost as well known for his philanthropy, helping raise tens of millions of dollars for first responders and hospitality workers in need. He's such a cultural icon that people dress up like him for Halloween and bar crawls. He even played himself in the film 80 for Brady. But before all of that, Guy was just a kid with big dreams and a Kool-Aid stand in a small town in California. I was so incredibly happy to get on a call with Guy to talk about how he hustled enough cash to send himself to high school in France. We talked about the thing Emeril Lagasse said that gave him chills and his adventures as a flambe captain. Welcome to season one, episode one of Tinfoil Swans, Guy Fieri and the Flying Mustard Jar. Oh my gosh. So you are actually technically my first guest on Tinfoil Swans. Great name, by the way. Thank you very much. When I was coming up with these questions, I was thinking of this one in particular, and I realized I actually know the public answer about it for you. It's who were you when you were 10, but you're a person who there happens to be a story about who exactly you were when you were 10 and you starting a pretzel cart. But who was the you that thought to put those parts together? I come from very creative parents. My mom and dad are, are both just amazing people. And they started, I mean, they, they're self-made. My mom was a school teacher. My dad was a veteran in uh, submarines for four years. They came from Columbus, Ohio, where they had me and came to California. And my dad was always an entrepreneur. I mean, he could always do anything. And so they lived in Whittier, California and would travel north and, and every time they got some vacation time. And they found this little town called Ferndale, where I was raised. And they arrived in Ferndale in a Econoline van. They had a hide of leather, 50 pounds of wax, and I think $50. So my parents were just always these people that made things happen. My dad built his own house. So that's just kind of the environment that I was raised in. And there was no such thing as it can't be done. There's no such thing as we can't make something happen. And so whatever I wanted to do... My parents were always really encouraging and really supportive of that. And that's just kind of how it all, that's how it all started. But I was also a very outwardly kid. I was always involved with people. I mean, this little town didn't have a stoplight. We only had one cop, one car, and I would just roam the streets, you know, up and down the town, knew people all the time. And my parents, it was a funny joke that my, I can't believe I'm going to tell you this, but I will tell you. The bakery would call and say, hey, you know, guy has been down here and this is like the fourth tourist that has come in here and bought him a cookie. And the ice cream shop would call my parents and say, hey, you know, Guy's been in here and he just, he said, this is like the second time that somebody's buying him ice cream. And this would go on and on. So my parents put a sign on my back that said, please don't feed me. I'm oh not my eating God. my dinner when I go home. Please don't feed me. They pinned it to the back of my shirt. And I knew that I had this sign on my back. So I went and scraped it off against the telephone. And my mom caught me. The sign was gone. So she silk screened it on the shirt. Oh my God. 
please don't feed me. And then I turned the shirt inside out. So she silk screened the other side. It was just that kind of a life. I'm just trying to imagine also in my mind how you got from just being this kid hanging around to convincing people to buy you ice cream. Have you just always had that thing where you've been able to connect? I always would talk to people and... This town was known for its tourists. It's such an amazing town. It's an old Victorian village. I was just there yesterday, matter of fact. But it just was that kind of thing. And I was always into business. I was always into making money. I was always into something. Like I had a Kool-Aid stand before kids had Kool-Aid stands. I mean, I was rocking the Kool-Aid game until my dad caught me with a purple arm. I said, why is your arm purple? I said, because I was making Kool-Aid. He says, you can't stir the Kool-Aid with your arm. He says, where's your stick? I said, my doctor. He says, that's it. You're out of Kool-Aid business. We're not serving arm-stirred Kool-Aid to these tourists. So then I would sell my toys. I'd set up a little stand and sell my toys. People would buy the toys and then take them into my parents' business and say, your kid just sold us his Tonka truck. Here's the truck back. But where I really started to get creative was I went down to the appliance store. I mean, there's only 1,400 people in this town, but this little dairy town had all the amenities that a town needed. So we had an appliance store, Smith & Scalvini. So I went down to Smith & Scalvini and got a refrigerator box. And I drug the refrigerator box down to the town, this little square between my parents' business and, and actually they had two businesses at that time. And I cut a hole in it and taped the stick underneath it and made a little window. And then I got my crayons and pens and stuff and I drew candy store on it. And then I borrowed 50 cents from my dad and went over to the candy store and bought all the penny candy with my 50 cents. And then I set up all the candy on the little shelf and I sat inside of it and sold the candy. And the tourists would come by and they'd give me 50 cents. Now, granted, this is 1975, you know, maybe I'm six or seven years old. And I sat there and sold the candy. I made 20 bucks. And my dad kind of, and the candy store lady which came over and said, she wasn't going to sell any more candy. And she was great. She, it was, her name was Trudy. But no, that was how it was, man. I was just always in the mix. And food was always my thing. I would fake sick to stay home to cook. I found the joy of cooking. And I was like, wait a second. All the answers are here. Why doesn't everybody make this food? I was bewildered by this whole thing. So I would just cook. And I remember the first time I cooked started because of something that happened with my mom. I came around the corner and I said, oh my gosh, we're having chicken parmesan? Because we didn't eat a lot of meat. We were vegetarian for a long time. And my mom says, no guy, we're having eggplant parmesan. And I said, mom, why can't we just have chicken parmesan like the normal families? Ooh. She said, listen, guy, if you don't like it, then you cook. And I said, okay. The next day I went to down to the grocery store, Valley Grocery, and saw John Maselli, the butcher. I said, I want to make dinner tonight, but I want meat. Can I get some meat? So he gives me a couple of ribeyes, I think. And I said, what do you serve with this? And he says, spaghetti. So I went over and got spaghetti. That was nine, maybe eight. So I got spaghetti and I got spaghetti sauce and I got the steak and I went home. I didn't have any idea. I just knew that spaghetti sauce and spaghetti had made it together eventually. So I cooked the spaghetti in the sauce from raw. I bet that was good. Maybe dry little. It worked. <laughs> but I cooked the steak. Only thing I knew about steak was that I loved soy sauce. So it was butter and soy sauce. I seared the steak, butter and soy sauce. Okay, that doesn't sound bad either. My parents come home. My dad comes walking in. My dad's tall. My dad's six two, six three, With cowboy boots, he was six. Eight. But he comes walking and what are you doing? I go, hey, 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 hey. Mom said I could. He looks at my mom and goes, She goes, Well, I didn't think you'd do it take it for serious. Did they not know who their son was? I said, dinner's ready. So they sit down. My dad takes it and cuts in the steak, takes a bite, sets the fork and the knife down, and looks over at me. And I'm like, Oh, I'm dead. I'm dead. And he said, You know what? 
might be the best steak I've ever had in my life. And I went, what? Hang on a second. Rewind. So you're saying, if I cook, we get to have meat. If I cook, I don't have to do the dishes. (laughs) This is game on. And from that day forward, I mean, I was cooking all the time. And I had this love affair with food to such a point that that's what got me to France. I was an exchange student. We had exchange students when I was a kid, and I was eating all different types. I mean, I was eating sushi when I was six years old. My parents were into everything. I mean, we ate just very super eclectic menu. How is that for a run-on answer? It's gorgeous, and it actually takes me exactly where I was hoping we would go with this, because I'm wondering, when you're wanting this money and you're wanting this thing, what did you want it for? Did you want it to make your to make your world bigger? What did you want the money for? My dad always told me to have money in my pocket. You got to have money. You got to be resourceful. My dad was really, I mean, the, the, the greatest coach in the world. But the truth of it was, it could open doors. It could make things happen. We weren't a rich family, but we were very rich in experiences. We had horses. We packed into the mountains. We'd go live in the mountains for 10 days with all we could bring is what we could pack on our horses. And you counted on cats and fish to have dinner, that kind of stuff. But I wanted to pay my own way. Like I paid my way through college. I paid my way to go to France. I saved my money. I had my pretzel business. I saved all my money. So I'm 14 years old and I've got $10,000 from selling pretzels at the fair and at the rodeo and all that kind of stuff. So I knew that I wanted to be in charge and that I had to manage it. And that's how I did it. And money is freedom. I mean, money is escape and it's possibility to go and and do what you want to do. So I grew up on the other side of the Ohio River from you. I grew up in Kentucky and I had a notion of what was fancy and French was definitely in there. What was your notion of what was fancy when you were that age? And did France figure into this? Well, my mom was the host mother for the exchange program mm-hmm. called EF and you couldn't go into the program unless you had three years of, of a language. Well, in my town, our high school only had 150 kids. We, they only taught Spanish. And you couldn't take Spanish until you were a junior or senior. So that was never going to work. So we always had people coming to our house. I mean, my house was kind of like the soup kitchen. That's the way my house is now. I mean, I have friends that every, any <laughs> given night, somebody's over here for dinner. And my mom's aunt was at mass in D.C., And the gentleman next to her was French and they started talking and he said he was going to California to sell corks. And she said, well, my niece lives there in California and you're going to be there during Thanksgiving. You should go to their house for Thanksgiving dinner. Wow. So that happened. This guy, Pierre Lachaud, shows up, comes to our house for dinner. This French guy, and I'm sitting next to him and I'm like, hey, what's France like? So he starts telling me and we started explaining like where foods come from and this whole thing. And so I keep in touch with him. And I hit him up. I said, hey, listen, I'd like to come to France. I'd like to go to school in France. And I was maybe 13. And I made a deal to my parents. I said, can I take conversational French at the junior college when I was a sophomore? And my dad says, if you can take the class and you could pass the beer better, you can go to France. So I took the junior college course at lunchtime while I was in high school and passed it with a beer better. Only reason I passed is because all the girls in the class thought it was cute that this little high school kid was there. And they helped me study and go through it. When I got done with the class, I got to be better. I couldn't speak a word of French. I understood the concept of the language, but I didn't have a very good vocabulary. And I said that I wanted to go. And my parents put me on the plane and I flew to France. Balled my eyes out. I was scared to death. Just had turned 16. Just had my driver's license. But you can't drive in France until you're 18. So I fly over. Pierre picks me up. He has a buddy that runs a high school. 
And the guy was a big pro-American. They fought with the Americans in the war. And there I'm dropped off at a boarding house and go to high school. And I could barely have a conversation with anybody in French. I bought a translation book at the airport of like a hundred most common phrases. And I carried that around and just fake it until I make it and went to high school and figured out how to speak French. Oh my goodness. At that point, did you know that you were going to be making your living in food? Is that something where you saw that and could imagine it? Or was that later? No, no, I didn't. It did happen when I was in France. I did write to my dad and say, I'm going to be a chef. I'm going to own restaurants. I said, because I was eating food that was just blowing my mind. And it's not that I was eating French food like we think we know French food. French food there, they were organic before organic was organic. And that's just what it was. You went to the farmer's market, you bought your food every day for what you were going to cook. And I'm eating things like, I, God, this, there's no way this is the same steak we have in the United States. But I remember having chicken feet soup. And I'm sitting there eating this chicken feet soup, and I'm like, this is the greatest thing in the world. Yeah, I'm writing my friends, tell them the stuff that I'm eating, and they're just losing their mind. Because school lunch, to have goat tongue for school lunch or lamb's tongue for school lunch was a normal thing. The best meals I had were school lunch. I was so excited. There was two meal periods. I'd eat one meal period, and I'd come back and eat again. But you're feeding 1,500 kids at a time. The greatest food fight I've ever seen in my entire life happened in that. It's Mardi Gras. Okay. And everybody's dressed up. And the vice principal of the school was a really mean guy. I mean, big dude, just mean. I would have liked him. Well, he comes in and starts yelling at people about something and something. And someone dings him in the back of the head with a piece of bread. And he flips out. And then he turns and he goes after him, trying to find out who did it. And then somebody else be beans him. And all of a sudden, people just start laying into this guy. I mean, dunking the bread in water and rifling at him. Just whack. Oh, he goes ballistic. Well, the next thing I know is it goes into a full-on war. Tables are getting knocked over. People are commandeering the bread, soaking it in the water, standing up, holding up the hotel pan, and rifling the bread at each other. People are throwing handfuls of green beans. I mean, it was just out of control. You think of 1,500 kids going full-on food fight. It was the coolest food fight I've ever seen in my whole life. And... Yeah, I mean, it just destroyed. I don't think we had to eat in the dining hall for a week. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. You're just like living animal house there. My life has been animal house. Okay. <laughs> the craziest stories, this, the things that I've lived through and what has gone on, it, it has been, honestly, when it comes out in a book one day, I think I'm going to write the book, publish it, and not release it until I'm dead. Because I just think that there's too much stuff that's gone down that I don't want to be around when people read it. <laughs> Cannot be held accountable for that because I was actually going to ask if you were going to do a memoir. And I just assume you will because I think the world could use this. And you're in this amazing thing. That's got to be a hard crash landing once you come back to the States. When I came back, I it was the day that school, high school started, my senior year. I'm sitting at the, the dinner table with my dad. And he goes, you're not going back, are you? I said, I don't think so. He goes, all right, well, go get a job. So, and go to school. You got to go to college. I said, okay. So I drove up to the college. I was only 17. And I drove up to the college. Well, I'd taken the class. I had taken the, the uh, French class. So when I signed up for the school, they didn't ask any questions. I just signed up. <laughs> then I went, in, I went into town, to the big town. Eureka is, is our biggest town. And I went and started putting in applications at restaurants. And I had sent applications from France, the two restaurants that I wanted to work at. 
And I remember going in there and they're like, you're the crazy kid that sent us the application from France. We don't understand anything you're talking about. When I get a job at the Red Lion Motor Inn and I'm a bus boy, but they have a flambe captain program and I want to be a flambe captain really bad. So I still borrow the stuff and take it home and practice being a flambe captain. Okay, so could you explain what flambe captain is here? Do I need to salute you while I say flambe captain? It's the tuxedo. Okay. It's the rolling cart. I was making crepe Suzette, yes. steak Diane, scampi bronze, Caesar salad, spinach salad, cherries jubilee, bananas foster, you name it, I made it. All table side. So I, I wanted to be a flambe captain. Well, I was only 17. So I flambe captain, going to, going to junior college, hadn't even graduated high school. Didn't take the SATs, just kind of going with the flow. Then my dad called me and said, hey, there's a really cool program down in Las Vegas, a hospitality program, because he knew I wanted to open my own restaurants. And he said, why don't you go down? And you really need to have business sense behind this industry that you want to be in. So I went down to uh, UNLV and had enough credits to transfer as a junior college. They still didn't know I didn't have a high school diploma and uh, that I had graduated high school. And I went down to UNLV and got my degree in hospitality. And that was it. We'll be back with more from Guy after the break. This episode of Tenfold Swans from Food and Wine is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced sweet bees honey barbecue chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to Tinfoil Swans. Today, I'm chatting with Guy Fieri. I mean, at this point, you're, you're just going with it. You're just going with it. But do you have in your head a picture of like what you want this thing to be? Like, or I'm a person who I, I don't tend to sort of think that far ahead with things. I'm happy with things as they come. But do you? did you have a benchmark of like, here's who I want to become? Was there somebody out in the world and you thought, ah, I want to be like them? Or did you always just picture doing your own thing? No, I didn't have any. I, I wanted to be in charge. I wanted to own my own stuff. So now when I was going, I was graduating college and my parents were there. And I said to my dad, I said, I think I'm going to go to culinary school. And he goes, why? I said, I don't know. Seemed like something to do. And he's like, you already cook. He's, why don't you do this? Why don't you go out in the industry? See what's going on out there. Find out if you don't know enough about cooking that maybe you need to go to culinary school. I cook. He said, I think you need to know how to run a restaurant, how to handle restaurants on all aspects. Why don't you go figure that out? So that's what I did. So I took off and went and worked for Stover's in Long Beach at their flagship restaurant. I worked every job I could. Anything I didn't know, I learned. I worked in the kitchen, cover all the kitchen chefs. And so I was getting this huge influx of, of things. Well, the, the assistant general manager of the restaurant hated me. I mean, bad. She was, I was a thorn in her side because I was at, and I was out of control. And so she went to a headhunter and put my name out with the headhunter that I was looking for a job. And a company <laughs> called me and offered me a job or to come apply for a job. And I went to him and I became a general manager. That's one of the things, you know, I wasn't going to make a general manager at the Stopa restaurant. And I was young. I was 22 yeah. years old. So I go and, and get this job as a GM 
and I'm training and developing and changing the whole MO of how this thing's going. And this, this guy named Robert Kissinger, who's still a really good friend of mine, he said, where'd you learn to do all this? I said, I, I don't know. So then he goes, you want to take over some more restaurants? Whatever you need. So I was 22 years old. I was district manager of eight restaurants, just kicking ass. And then my business partner, he ran half the restaurants. I ran the other half the restaurants and talked to each other after the end of these, uh, end of these meetings and say, we're running this company. Why don't we do our own company? So we took off and built the restaurant in a box and basically did all the recipe prep and, uh, and all the menu writing in the garage, this guy's house on a camp stove and made 64 variations of roasted garlic soup. My wife still to this day will not taste roasted garlic soup. And that was it. At any point, do you have, I mean, I'm a person plagued by anxiety and doubt constantly every morning, every, do you have that in your head? Was there ever a moment you were thinking like, what am I doing? Maybe I can't do this. What do you attribute that to? I've never been a half full person. I'm very optimistic. I like to look at the positive sides of things. It's like kind of like this whole career, the things that are going on when I got to television and people say like, how do you handle criticism? How do you handle it? Like, yeah, I don't know. If it came from you, Kat, if you called me and said, hey, you know, what's your restaurant guy and that this and this and this were not good or this sucked, whatever, I'd take it to heart and I would definitely do something about it. Sometimes people's motives to give criticism aren't genuine. And so, I, so I'd so i take it from who's it coming from? You know, who's the messenger? And that's just always kind of been my thing. Yeah, do I have feelings? Absolutely. Do I get my feelings hurt? Yeah, without question. Do I have, you know, trepidations? Yeah, well, but not that it rules me. I have to be the master. I have to be the commander of my, of my ship. And that's just kind of the way my parents raised me. Like I said, a lot of critical thinking, a lot of discussions, a lot of open table discussions of sitting down and going through stuff. And but I think we all, you know, we all crave validation. We all crave all these things. And I distinctly remember the first time we met, you told me about Emeril Lagasse. There was, uh, correct me if I'm getting the story incorrect, but you had been in front of a crowd and you basically got a benediction from Emeril Lagasse. What do those kind of moments mean to you? And can you walk us through that and what it meant to you? So it was at the South Beach Food and Wine Festival and Emeril was being recognized. It was my first year of being at the festival. And Emerald was one of the only names that I really knew. And what I was so impressed with is how Emerald elevated the world of food. And I call him, to still to this day, I call him the Elvis of food. I mean, he really was the one. We're at the Food and Wine Festival. And, and on Saturday night, someone is always, a, a chef is recognized by the festival and it's their dinner. It's their honoree dinner. So I'm there, I'm sitting at the table, Emeril's up there giving his speech, and he's thanking all the chefs that had cooked for him, and he's talking, and he starts talking about the future of the Food Network and the f industry, and there's somebody that you all should really be paying attention to and watch out, because this person is really somebody that, I'm going to tell you, you don't have any clue, and da 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 I'm like, who is this? And I'm just kind of tuned out for a second trying to figure out who it is. And someone taps me and goes, hey, hey, talking to you. I said, what? He was talking to you. I said, boo. He goes, Emerald. And I look and he goes, guy, come up here. I want you to stand with us. I mean, I couldn't even put it together. I mean, it still gives me goosebumps like nobody. I'm just like, what? So I get up and I'm walking up there and I'm looking around. I don't even know how people on the stage. I don't even know who these chefs are. I'm standing up on the edge of the stage by myself. They're all lined up. And I'm like, five feet away from everybody. And I'm just standing there and they, everybody speaks and Emerald comes by and shakes everybody's hand and shakes my hand. And then the night's over and I'm walking off the stage and John Tish, the owner of the loads comes up and goes, Hey chef, 
you just got anointed. That's that was big. I my throat's um, you you, ch- you choked me up right. And here. then to well, how many years later was it? Fifteen, sixteen years later, I'm the one up there getting the award, getting the honoree. Is very really special. But I, I I still to this day can't be thankful enough of everybody that paved the way before I got there. Emerald and Bobby and Rachel and Alton and all of these chefs that made such an amazing impact and, and developed the network. I, I really attribute the network to being probably the single biggest entity in writing the ship of the world getting its head on straight about what food is. We lived this year, these 80s and 90s of just this processed, over-manipulated, just garbage. And look at the restaurant trends that were going on. And these folks came in and started educating people on how food's to be made and what food is and so forth. Yeah, it's, it's been this huge driving force. And I worry sometimes, though, that anytime this happens with bands, this happens with food, this happens with everything, where some, once something becomes more accessible to more people, there is a segment of the population that somehow wants to ding it, that they feel somehow above it, that they feel something. And, and taste is used as this like horrifying cudgel. And I'm I'm sure you have some feelings about this. I say to people all the time, it's like, well, we'll we'll just use the elephant in the room with the pineapple on pizza. I've been to Naples. I've got wood fired up. I've worked with some of the greatest pizza chefs in the world. I don't care what you put on it. I don't take an attitude. It's even truffle oil. I'm not a truffle oil fan. I think truffle oil is so overly used. It can be used in moderation and it serves a place. You tell me you don't like a truffle oil french fry, okay? Do I like real truffles? Absolutely. Do I think that you should be throwing truffle oil on everything that you do? If that's what you want to do. But I don't have an attitude about it that it makes me dislike you. Do what you want to do. I don't, as long as you're not hurting yourself. Not hurt yourself, not hurt anybody else. You do what you want to do. I really feel like people, like snobbery comes out of insecurity and people are so scared to death that someone is going to judge them on what they like or who they think they are. And the happiest people I know are the people who just do the things that they want. I have mantra of like, if it tastes good, it is good. Like so long as it's not hurting anybody else, then what is that? That's the truth of it. And I think that, I don't think there's any rules. I think that's one of the things we've laughed about in my family, or my dad and I have laughed at least about not going to culinary school. Do I wish I'd gone? Absolutely. There's a lot of things that I wish I'd learned how to do better. I wish I knew how to bake. I don't like baking. I like bread. Would you, if you, if you were better at it, would you maybe like it better? I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm not a measurement person. It's tough to be a baker if you're not into right. measuring. I'm into feel. I'm into touch. And so, like when I make pizza dough, a lot of it you can't just go by. You can't go by measurement. You have to really be aware of your conditions and your environment and your moisture and your humidity and da da da. So I don't know, but anyhow, there's things that I. But I love learning about food. I read cookbooks like they're novels, same because there's so much message inside of them. There's so much education about where the foods come from or why foods interact the way they do together. People cheat themselves out of pleasure because they're afraid of what might happen. If we could talk about one moment, I've been very curious about this. The first time you came to the Food and Wine Classic in Aspen. What did you think you were going to find there? And how did you feel about coming to there? Well, I really appreciated the invite. And that's due to you. Thank you very much. And, my, and our good friend, Rocco Despirito. Oh, love that man. <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to find. I didn't, I'd never even been to Aspen. I saw it in Dumb and Dumber. So that was awesome. And I didn't know that the festival was going to embrace me the way it did. You know, I'm up there. I got told a bunch of rules. Really not good with rules. <laughs> and I made the joke when I was standing up there. I said, well, folks, hope you've enjoyed your demo today. Well, you know, Kat, you were there. Because it's probably going to be the last time that I'm here because I'm not supposed to be giving drinks out. 
and I'm not supposed to be setting things on fire. And I'm not so da, da, da. And that's when Hunter came up and invited me to come back to the festival. I, by the way, if you remember the story. Oh, I was there. I had no idea who that was. I just thought it was some really nice guy that came up and said, although I had met him just prior to that, but I didn't put it together. You know, I didn't put that whole thing together. But it's been, you know, I like to think about myself being involved in situations of bridging things. And I've been probably one of the biggest, biggest advocates about it. I've told so many people about it. I mean, I'm coming to see you in the middle of my family vacation. I'm coming to the festival. So I'm going to be on my family vacation in Montana and I'm renting a plane to fly to, because my planes, I was going to be on my family vacation. So I let my pilots take the time off. I'm renting a plane to fly to come do my demo and turn around and fly back. Because I said, I would, you've invited me. I don't want to, I don't want to be disrespectful of the invite. And so I'm, I'm coming to do it. But that's how, that's how important I'm going to it is. I'm floored and touched by that. I'm really incredibly grateful. <laughs> Sorry, I'm choked up now. What would 10-year-old guy, as he's putting together that pretzel stand, think if he could say a sentence like, I gave my pilots the time off and I'm renting a plane. And so what, what would he just be sitting there with stars in his eyes? What would you tell this kid? Honestly, it's never, ever changed. The whole thing. <laughs> I'm still 10. We can all do anything we want to do. We can all make the world a better place. Pivot the paradigm. Just take a little bit different perspective and just recognize your power. Okay? You, we can all make an improvement. We can make it financially. We can make it spiritually, emotionally, physically, whatever. If someone says, well, if I don't have any money to donate or if I don't have any free time to donate. I said, then you know what? Go to your social media. Go to your Facebook. Go to your whatever medium you use. And post positive things to people about them saying what they do. It's everything. Post positive reviews of you going to a restaurant. Don't just talk about it. Post it. You know, be involved. And that's so surprising for people sometimes. But once people start to really realize they can make a difference and they can change the paradigm, they can change the perspective. It, it's just, it's like a light bulb going off in their head. And I just don't think that we teach enough of that about this critical thinking and about the ability that we have to manifest things into a different direction through our own power. And don't complain about it. Do something about it. You know, be involved. So when, when the pandemic hit, I got a phone call that restaurants were going to get closed in California. All these restaurants, my restaurants, I have 95 restaurants, yeah. but I'm not even thinking about me. I'm thinking about all these mom and pop restaurants that had just loaded up on their groceries that are going to be closed this weekend and all the people that are going to be without jobs and bills and so forth. And I'm like, we got to do something. So I got my team on the phone the next morning and I said, okay, take my black card and go around to the restaurants, all the mom and pop restaurants in town and go buy $50,000 in gift certificate. Okay. What are we going to do with gift certificate? I said, well, we're going to front load them. You know, these restaurants are eventually open again. So now we have gift certificates. Uh, we'll give them to homeless people that are not going to be able to. So we'll give them, give these gifts. To them. Okay, great. So by the time I get done working out, I call my team. My team says, hey, can't just do your town. What, what about California? Now you're right, California. I said, how much credit limit do we have on the, on the American Express black card? Million dollars. I said, hey, take it easy. Take it easy. I said, 50,000. So I said, okay, let's start. Let's figure out a way to get a bunch of gift certificates going. Told my dad about it. My dad says, guy. He says, you go all over the country. You can't just pick California to support. So I get everybody on the phone. I said, okay, here's game plan. Got my attorney on the phone that does my restaurant deals. A guy named Riley Largison. I said, Riley, you know all the big companies that have direct impact from the restaurant industry, right? Cargill, Uber Eats, Pepsi, Coca-Cola, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I said, can you get me the email or the cell number of all of the presidents of these companies? 
He says, yeah. Why? I said, because I'm going to send him a message that I need some money from him for the restaurant industry. And everybody's like, what? I said, yeah, I'm going to send. So I made 43 different messages. I went, wrote information down about Amazon, sent one to Jeff Bezos, sent one to Pepsi. Sent one, and I made these messages and I filmed them and said, hey, you know, Sky Fieri, our industry is getting shut down. We have 2 million restaurant employees that are going to need help. And I want to raise some money. I'm raising $100 million. I need you to give me some money. Okay. Here's my cell number. Call me. Okay. Everybody thought I certifiably lost my mind. My wife is, I, I did it right over here in the kitchen. All Sunday night, I did it. I made these things. And they sent them to Riley. I said, send them to these people. So the next day, we're shutting down the house, going to our ranch. It's, you know, everybody's got a shelter in place. And I'm driving along, going up to my ranch. And my manager calls me, Reed. He's the COO of my company. He goes, what <laughs> did you do last night? I go, what do you mean? He goes, you sent out videos to people, shaking them down for money? I said, yeah, kind of. Because I said to him in the video, hey, you know what? You've been getting a lot off the restaurant industry your entire career. Your whole company has. Time to step up, okay? Be one of the people that I get to tell everybody showed up to support the industry that I love so much and that you've made so much money off of. Don't be the person that's not. He goes, well, I got Pepsi on the phone and they want to give you a million dollars. I said, what? So I am completely shell-shocked that this is going on. I talked to Pepsi. By the time I made it in an hour and drove over to the ranch, we had 3.8 million. Uber Eats jumped in. All kinds of people started jumping in. And that went on. And then I was getting up every morning and doing the news in, in New York. So four in the morning and doing the news and pitching this idea. And we raised over $25 million. But you were one of our food and wine game changers, I believe, in 2020, 2021, something like that. For all time is a flat circle at this point. But Well, it, I'll tell you what. It wasn't the money. It was the recognition to the industry that one of yours is protecting you, is here for you, to give you a hug. That's what I called it. I just called it a big hug. And when people would come up to me and say, I got the $500, we gave out 44,000 grants. They were $500 grants. 44,000 people got a $500 grant, never had to pay it back. When they come up and say to me, I got the money, they weren't saying the money. They came up and said, you know, they came up and they got the hug. They got the recognition that their industry loves them and their industry is going to protect them. And it was probably, cat out of everything I've ever done in my career, ever done in my life, the, and everybody told me I was crazy and I couldn't do it. That probably was the most defining moment of my career, of my life, you know, in terms of besides being a dad and all these other things. Because all I had to do was just believe that I couldn't do it and it wasn't going to happen. Or I could believe that I was going to pull it off and it was going to happen. And... We changed things. Yeah, you did in a, in a really meaningful way. And just got a few more questions for you. What is, and you can interpret this any way that you want, what is a tinfoil swan moment to you? There's a restaurant in Rhode Island that my wife took me to when we were first married called Twin Oaks. And it's a country club-ish type restaurant, high leather back boots. And everybody goes there. This is a well-known place. Still there. We come in. Their parents, her dad was my favorite human in the world. Besides my father, her dad was my dad. I mean, just the neatest guy. Unfortunately, lost him. But we go there, we come in, and the waiter comes over. I think he was smoking a cigarette. Tie, half undone. And he comes over and he goes, you guys want something to drink? This is the nicest restaurant. I mean, this is a nice restaurant. This is a nice country clubish type, you know. What's something to drink? So yeah, Jack and Coke. He said, all right, got him on him. Got him on him. He walks away. I go, what was that? What, what, what just happened? 
And the guy comes back and he slings down four banana boat dishes of this calamari in a pepperoncini white wine sauce. And this is like the signature item for the, I go, hey, 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 what was this? What, what are you doing? You know, I'm paying the bill. I'm like, he goes, come on. I said, slow down for a second. Take a cigarette out of your mouth. <laughs> what is this? He says, it's calamari a la mama. <laughs> so he walks away. I ate all four dishes. <laughs> I ate them all. It was unbelievable. It was the best calamari I've ever had in my life. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> this is incredible. So that's one of them. It was just this complete fish out of water, had no idea where I was. And, and, but I have the greatest restaurants. I'll tell you my, my Hall of Fame restaurant story. Bring it. I'm a flambe captain. <laughs> and I'm cooking at this table. And everybody would come to the Red Lion in Eureka. This was the fine dining restaurant in, in, the, in the town. So I've got this couple that's sitting at the table. And she's got a Marge Simpson hairdo. <laughs> and her husband is sitting at the 12 o'clock position. She's at 3 o'clock position, not even sitting together. And they're celebrating their 2035th wedding anniversary. Okay. She's so excited. She hadn't been out in a long time. Ranch family. The dude's sitting there. He's got these gnarled up old fingers. He's got his tweed jacket on. He's had about six scotch and sodas. And she's having white Zinfandel. Ooh, she's having white Zinfandel. And so I'm coming over to the table to cook. What are you doing now? Putting the butter in the pan. Ooh, Frank, butter. Putting butter in the pan. So this goes on. I, what, what now? He said, well, these are the mushrooms for the steak, man. The dude hasn't said a word to me, okay? <laughs> he's on him. He's just a scotch and soda. She's there. She's just excited as can be. Well, in the presentation of being a Fawn Bay captain, there's certain things we do. Throw the pepper grinder behind the back, the bottle. But one is to open the Dijon mustard with one hand, take out the spoon, dollop it in, and put the lid back on the mustard and set it down. There's all these little points of flare. So the, it never really gets tight back on there, but it's, the lid's back on. Oh, God. Well, when you dress your cart that evening for service, you have a certain length that you hang the tablecloth down around the cart. It gets clipped in with a ring, and there's a protocol. Well, I never like to see the wheels on my cart, so I would always hang my curtain, my tablecloth, a little bit longer, which would always cause problems because the, sometimes the wheel would catch the curtain or catch the, the thing. So I cook the whole dinner, serve it to the lady. Guy never says, thank you, screw you, nothing. She's so happy. She's got, she's having her steak, Diane, and he's having another scotch and soda. And I go to move the cart. No tip, by the way. It doesn't tip me anything. I go to move the cart, and the tablecloth has got caught in the wheel. Oh, God. So I don't do what you're supposed to do, like mature people would, and release it. I just think I'll yank it a little bit harder. I yank it. It sucks the tablecloth into the wheel. Shifts all the ingredients on top of the cart to the right, and the mustard falls off the cart. The mustard falls off the cart and lands on its edge. The lid pops off. A globule of mustard flies through the air and center punches Marge right in the forehead. Whap! So much so that when it made it splatter, there was a silhouette of her on the booth. I look at her, she looks at me, I look at him, and all of a sudden, it comes tumbling down her hair. <gasps> I look at him, he turns bright red, falls over in the booth, 
and tipped me 40 bucks. Oh, my God. Said it was the best anniversary he's ever had. Oh, my God. You know, just when something hits the right way, the wrong way, just boom, it went flying through there. And I was like, no. And she did, you know, well, what had happened? I'm sorry. What had happened is she was taking a sip of the wine. That's why she didn't know that it hit her. She was taking a sip of the wine and it <laughs> clipped the bottom of the glass. And that's what made it splatter. <laughs> but it, it splattered so heavy that it got all into her hair. And she didn't know what had happened because they hadn't hit her before. It had hit her hair. She didn't know what happened, but she could see my look and she could see her husband. Whoever's listening to this podcast who is an animator, I need you from the depths of my soul to create a short film of this. <laughs> hey, I set the dining room on fire with my flambe cap. I mean, I did some stuff as a flambe captain that just should not have been done. That just crazy. There's a whole book just about flambe captaining and the bad behavior. Thank you for that. Thank you for all of this. Do you have anything that you wish that I had asked you or that people would ask you in general? No, I, I, I really, I really appreciate this and I appreciate being on the show. You know how much I admire you and adore you. It's so mutual. So when you asked me to do this, of course, I'd jump at the chance. And the fact that I get to be the first. Yes, you're my pancake. <laughs> you're going to, you're going to do great with this. You have such a wonderful perspective on the world and the world needs more of you. Well, thank you. And the fact that you're taking this and walking people through this and giving us a chance to see the other side of chefs, I think is really going to be awesome and very successful. The whimsical name is a perfect example of who you are. <laughs> so no, I don't, there's nothing that you haven't asked me. I just want to be invited back. Oh, yeah. And, and, to, and tell more stories and have more laughs. Always. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Guy Fieri. Please be sure to follow Tinfoil Swans on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And we would love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. I'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at foodandwine.com slash tinfoilswans with S on the end. Thank you so much to our production team, Lottie Le Marie, Dominique Arciero, Michael Classic, Amelia Schwartz, Ashley Day, Sean Flynn, and Hunter Lewis. Next week, my guest is Mashama Bailey. 